Hi, everyone. It's Jillian Youngblood with Civic Genius. Thanks for tuning in. So when I think about political polarization in the U.S., which I do pretty much all the time, it feels like this historically crazy phenomenon. People attribute polarization in this country to all sorts of things, cultural changes, demographic changes, structural things like how we elect senators or how we fund our political campaigns. And no matter what the root cause is or causes are, it feels like kind of world ending that somehow the most powerful country in the world has gotten itself into this unholy mess. But I've actually been feeling a little less doom and gloom about it lately because I've been reading about moments of intense strife in other countries throughout history, like Northern Ireland and South Africa. And that's been a powerful reminder that it's possible for a nation to go all the way to the brink, whether that is intense inequality or all-out violence, and come back from it. So that's why I'm really excited to be talking today with Nassim Curry, who, in addition to being the communications director of the great organization Urban Rural Action, is a trainer, consultant, mediator, and facilitator specializing in negotiation, influence, and conflict management. He works with a bunch of different consulting firms, and he's also an adjunct assistant professor of international relations at Tuff University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I could spend all day on his resume, but he is more interesting than me. So let me just welcome Nassim Curry. I, I doubt that, but uh, thank, you for, <laughs> thank you for the welcome. Um, so Nassim, could you just tell us kind of what your background is? Uh, sure. So I uh, have been interested in conflict in, in, and not necessarily war, but conflict in the way that you and I disagree over our favorite meals or where we're going for dinner or whatever, but the way that people have differences. I've been interested in that for, for a long time and, uh, and got involved with this whole community um, that kind of sprung out of this um, Harvard negotiation project, program of negotiation at, at Harvard, this whole community of people who uh, who built on the sort of teachings of this this guy named Roger Fisher, who wrote this book called Getting to Yes. Um, and there's a whole community of people out there who who really uh, sort of were inspired uh, by, by those ideas that Roger had and have built them into organizations and other ideas. And um, in one form or another, I've been working with those ideas for 20 years now, uh, working as a consultant to various different types of organizations um, and working as uh, a educator, as a, as a mediator, all of those kinds of things, just basically because I'm interested in why we disagree and what we're disagreeing about. And oftentimes it seems to me really dumb <laughs> because it <laughs> seems like uh, I think we're actually agreeing on this thing. What are we actually disagreeing about? Um, and so I, I'm always interested in grappling with those kinds of questions. Um, and that has what, what has led me to work with uh, a huge variety of clients, which I love. I love working with all sorts of completely different folks. I work with um, sort of uh, folks who work in uh, progressive activism all the way to Navy SEALs. Um, I work with uh, diplomats uh, with the U.S. State Department and with um, in other with other country diplomats from other countries um, to uh, procurement folks in in companies. 
And, and I love the fact that I can do that because at the end of the day, uh, it's people trying to advance their own, in, own interests while managing relationships. Um, that's the theme that comes across, across all those different contexts, like wildly yeah. different contexts. But at the end of the day, it's just people trying to advance their interests and then, uh, and, you know, it's trying to deal with other people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, other people. Really, that's what I'm interested in. That's why I'm interested in it. Yeah, I think that's a really useful frame because I think when when you think of um, conflict resolution, it sound it can seem very like kumbaya, and we're here to yeah, like, I hate that. Sure, different, <laughs> right? So tell me about that. I like it's funny because you so you, one of the first things you talked about um, was the Harvard negotiation project, and when I think of negotiations, I think of like who's the guy from Entourage, the like re yeah yeah Emmanuel <laughs> character, um, like we're going to negotiate and you're going to pound everybody into the ground. Um, yeah. And you, it sounds like you're kind of talking about this middle ground where it's like the point of having these conversations is because you want something, but also it doesn't have to be toxic. Yeah. And it's funny. We work with uh, a lot of people who say, no, I don't negotiate. Um, and you know, part of our job is convincing them, Hey, actually you do uh, because people associate the word negotiation with, um, yeah, I'm going to go into a room and I'm going to pound on the table and we have a contract negotiation. I'm going to extract as many dollars out of this guy as possible or whatever, but they don't consider just you and I needing to agree on where we're eating for dinner and negotiation. Um, and it is, we are negotiating all the time over everything. Uh, we are influencing each other all the time over everything. Um, and that's, that's how I think about it. And yes, I agree that sort of conflict management, conflict resolution totally gets a bad rap, uh, and gets affiliated with, uh, you know, um, the kumbaya kind of stuff, um, which, uh, which is sort of maddening to me because it automatically means people are going to dismiss it. Um, as something I'm not going to take seriously. And, uh, and we treat, we treat sort of managing differences and bridging differences and actually just figuring out what differences are as a really serious thing. Um, this isn't fluffy. This isn't uh, something that we need to hold hands. In fact, I can absolutely disagree with you. We can actually have conflict and that may actually be a good thing as long as we do it productively. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how do you get, um, so in any example, whether it's dinner or something else, like you do, I think everyone has had this experience where you get, dug into your position for one reason or another, and it may be a good justifiable position. Um, and then sometimes you get to a point where you realize that you actually do, you're, you're actually like at a point of agreement, but you can't kind of psychologically get yourself there. So you're like, no, I'm angry. I'm at, <laughs> like, I can't give in now, even though I'm not really giving in. How do you, like, how do you think about that? Or how do you work with people who are in a negotiation um, when they're feeling that way? Totally. Um, and I think you just, you just identified a really important dynamic of any kind of conflict situation or any situation where we have difference, um, which is this idea of competition and the fact that we might, we oftentimes treat our conversations as competitions. And what's the, what does that mean? That means that suddenly I'm not paying, I'm paying attention less to what we're actually talking about. I'm actually paying attention less to the substance and much more to the process in which we're having this and much more to how we're actually having this conversation. Um, and that might mean that I just like, I really just don't want to agree with you. Yes, we both agree that puppies are the cutest things on the earth, but I refuse to say out loud that I agree with you because you've been kind of a jerk and 
you've been sort of um, sort of shaming me into my position. So I just don't want to agree with you. It has nothing to do with puppies, mm -hmm. right? It has everything to do with our dynamics and 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 suddenly this has become a competition where I just want to beat you. Um, and I've totally lost sight of the original goal of just trying to have a conversation about puppies, you know? Um, so I think that that's, that role of competition is a big one. And countless uh, people have written really great books on the role of emotions in negotiation, the role of emotions in conflict, uh, and how it can be, how it can be uh, sort of named and identified and managed. And that's also obviously playing a huge role here. Uh, but tons of other factors that have very little to do with the actual substance of what we are actually talking about here it has so much more to do with the relationship we have, the history, the sort of baggage we're bringing into this, the way in which we're communicating with each other. Um, I just don't like your tone. I just I'm so annoyed by that, like whatever it is. Um, but it's and we sort of trick ourselves into thinking that it is only about substance. I can't believe you don't agree with me about the puppies. Right. Um, so yeah, lots of other factors yeah. that, that go on there. So how do I guess two questions is one, it sounds like there's a lot of um, research behind how you can regulate your own emotions and how you can be a better negotiator. So one is, do you have any guidance for people who would like to do that? And then secondarily, when you are negotiating or arguing with someone who, you know, like hasn't read the literature, like what can you do in the moment that makes those interactions better? Yeah. So there's uh, also lots of um, research guidance on the first, uh, on your first point, you know, how do you actually stabilize yourself in, in a moment if you are experiencing some sort of emotional response? Um, you know, people are very familiar with fight, flight, or freeze, and, and what's actually happening physiologically to your body that makes that really hard to do, and what are the steps that you can take? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure... I, I don't know if I want to go into like a, a two hour lecture on what those things are, but you know, there's basic stuff. There's uh, things around just breathing. Um, there's this idea around uh, thinking about something else in the moment um, and having your sort of your thoughtful brain uh, try to take over and convince your more sort of emotional brain uh, that uh, sort of get them off that path. Um, there are kind of tricks like that to trick your body into thinking you're not having this sort of emotional stress response. Um, and it's really hard to do and really requires practice over time. Um, and this is why a lot of folks who are interested in conflict are also interested in mindfulness and thinking mm -hmm. through how, how good am I, how skilled am I at being able to acknowledge in myself or to recognize in myself when I'm having an emotional response. Um, am I able to, uh, to create space between the stimulus and the reaction? There's a great quote from Viktor Frankl around that space between stimulus and reaction. That's where, like, lead, I forget what the exact quote is, but you can Google it. The audience I'll look it up. Google. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> um, but, like, that's where the power lies, is in that space between stimulus and reaction. Um, and so how can you sort of expand that space as much as possible. Um, so much of this work, so much of my own sort of learning and practice is around not reacting, um, not reacting in the moment to that crazy thing you just said about puppies, not reacting uh, to the way you said it, um, but so trying hard. to think through what's, yeah, no, it's really hard. Um, 
trying to trying to think through what's what's actually going on behind what you just said. What's the story behind that? Um, if I can tame the voice in my head that's saying you are just insane, can I get curious instead of instead of judgmental? Um, mm -hmm. And that's really that's that's hard work that takes practice. Uh, but the first thing it takes is a decision. Uh, the first thing it takes is you want to do that. Uh, and many people don't even think to do that, right? We just react. We don't make a deliberate decision around it. Um, right. I'm totally forgetting your second question. <laughs> I, I don't know why I asked like a long multi-part question when I could have just asked two questions. So yeah. if you are, okay, so oh, wait, let's say- if, if the other person has has no-, no Yeah, like you've done all the work, you are breathing and you're thinking of other things. And I am saying crazy stuff about puppies. And you're like, this woman is totally unreasonable and unhinged. Yeah. What can you, how can you work with me? <laughs> right. Let me qualify the breathing bit because it would be pretty awkward if I just started heavily breathing in front of you <laughs> in a conversation. So again, that is something to be practiced and and thought of in your own kind of authentic way. Um, yeah, I, I actually get that question a lot. Um, you know, great. You've told us all this wonderful tricks around how to negotiate effectively and how to manage conflict and influence others, etc. Unfortunately for you, uh, the whole world hasn't taken this course or gone through this workshop or whatever. So what do you do? And I think my first response is that in any conversation, we are always modeling the behavior that we want to see. Um, and we are always teaching just by behaving. We are teaching. Uh, and so it's the classic um, when I if if you look nervous or anxious about something and I go up to you, and I say, calm down. Uh, you're probably not going to calm down. But I actually don't think there's that much wrong with that. If I said calm down in a very different way, if I said, let's calm down, that's a lot different than me saying, calm down. And it's the way in which I'm doing it. I'm sort of modeling this behavior of being calm, right? Uh, and teaching so by just doing things, I'm, I'm trying to model that behavior for other, other folks. So oftentimes um, there is advice that a lot of people in my world um, give, which is you always have to be curious and you always have to want to learn about the other side. And I think that's necessary uh, and I think it's great and I think we have to do that and I think we don't do it enough. And I have a problem with it in that sometimes that might lead to me asking you a ton of questions and i would like to i would love that to be that model of behavior so that you are doing the same thing but you're just not getting the message you're just this is just suddenly an, an interview where i'm just asking you a bunch of questions and and so i might need to model some behavior around how i want this thing to go i might need to say uh, look, I've I've been asking you a lot of questions. I'm I'm hoping that you can be a little curious about my stance here too, um, so that you sort of create this atmosphere for where we're both kind of looking out for each other, and I'm able to model that behavior that I want to see. I want to see. I want to cultivate this atmosphere where it's not just me caring about you, but you need to care about me as well. And can I sort of demonstrate that? Um, yeah. And so a lot of times those are sort of what we call process moves where I'm talking again, not about substance, I'm talking about the how. Um, again, sounds like I'm I'm the one doing most of the talking here. It would be great, I think, for us to figure this thing out and better for you to meet your interests and me to meet my interests if you also did some talking here. Um, can we agree on that? 
And that's a negotiation on the process. That's not a negotiation on the substance. We're not talking about puppies. Uh, that's just in the how. Eventually, I'll stop talking about puppies, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could talk about puppies all day. <laughs> <laughs> They're very cute. It's the puppy podcast. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's so interesting that that we talk about this dynamic a lot. So we run these um, these large group deliberative um, events where we have like dozens and dozens of people and they're in small groups for the day and people are debating over policy and they're coming up with their own policies and trying to convince the rest of their uh, you know, group, how they can craft something that the entire table can get behind. And it's totally the same dynamic where if we did it town hall style, like people would show up with signs yeah. and everybody would be kind of dug into different positions. And um yeah, when you just model up front, like, here's the way we're going to talk about this. Let me give you, like, for me, it's really useful to get specific language. Like, I am sort of dense in these things. And I'm definitely, like, if there's a fight or flight, like, I'm inclined to fight. And it's really useful to just have some phrases in your back pocket that are like, mm. okay, here's a useful thing to just, you know, pull up when you're in that spot. Yeah. Um, but it is a learned skill. <laughs> and And it's a skill, I think, that requires practice and really deliberately practicing. So one thing to do to practice is to anticipate what are those situations that I know are going to rile me up. Um, if I know I'm getting into a conversation with my sister about whatever, um, or I know I'm going to get into this conversation with my spouse about this thing that has plagued us before, can I anticipate what they might say that might set me off? Um, because of my past experience. It's, it's great that I have past experience because it's a wealth of knowledge. Um, and can I not be caught blindsided? Can I prepare for that and steal myself and sort of say, look, if they say this thing, that's going to cut right at my identity and it's going to, I'm going to hear this thing as a total insult. It's not acknowledging how much work I do. It's not acknowledge whatever it is. Uh, can I prepare for that? How am I gonna, how am I gonna deal with that when that actually happens in the moment? So that to me is very much a question of practice um, yeah. and taking the time to think through and sort of scenario plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you need like a battle, a yeah. battle plan. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so you talked a little bit about your work with international diplomats, with political leaders, uh, with the state department, with the Navy SEALs, which I would love to hear about. Um, could you talk a little bit about your understanding of diplomacy and conflict and how that shapes your understanding of polarization in the U.S.? Yeah. So when we talk about all those different types of organizations, they're big organizations. They're, they're big entities. They're big bureaucracies. Um, and we talk about a diplomatic corps or we talk about um, uh, U.S. State Department. And then we start talking about, well, how, how, what is the State Department? How does that reflect U.S. interests? And then suddenly we're talking about U.S. interests and even larger entities. And at the end of the day, yeah, sure, we're talking about these large entities, but these large entities are made up of people. And it's individuals where uh where all of this sort of the rubber hits the road um or the rubber meets the road or hits the road the rubber okay. does something depends. with the road <laughs> depends on the vehicle <laughs> yeah and um 
And I, I treat, I think a lot of times we talk about polarization in the U.S. in, in a sort of monolithic terms in, in really large, in, we use the vocabulary of entities. We say it's red, blue, or it's urban, rural, or it's something like that. When at the end of the day, um, it, it's, it's people, it's individuals, and it's a collection of individuals. And so all of that work around trends and sort of geopolitical trends and um, trying to do analyses from that from that angle is helpful in setting the stage and setting context, but it's insufficient in trying to really understand what's going on with polarization. At the end of the day, um, you know, people are pissed at each other and it's an individual pissed at another individual. And sure, is that someone that they've potentially never met and they lump in with another group? Sure, but there's some cases where uh, where they they have met. <laughs> And, uh, and there's a sense of, hey, there's some real disagreement here. And are we actually dealing with this in a productive way? Are we creating the space for them to deal with it in a, in a productive way? Um, I've already mentioned the word process uh, too many times. It is the one thing that I think we just, we just underestimate always. Uh, whether it's in the process for how you and I are having this conversation or the process in which we're getting people together. I, I worked with uh, members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House, on how they have town halls. You, you mentioned about town halls uh, and where we were just literally talking about the physical setup of town halls because it sends yeah. a wildly different message if you, are, if you are addressing a crowd from a stage where you're two feet above them and you're talking through a microphone than if you're sitting at round tables. Um, and those kind of process types of considerations and the spaces in which we are we're bringing people together that really matters. Um, and I think that it's something that people really underestimate. So, uh, so to answer my long winded way of answering your question, uh, we're a bunch of individuals. And I think that we need to think uh, a lot about the process in which in which we're engaging these things, because if we don't think about that, it's so easy for us to fall into these traps of, well, all red people are this all blue people are that. Um, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. <laughs> You know, that's a, a good segue. So how did you get involved in urban rural action? So urban rural action is the, the brainchild of, of a guy named Joe Budman, um, who was a friend of mine who um, I had been having coffee with for years, just batting ideas around. Um, and, and this was his idea. Um, and the idea was simply to bring Joe has a tremendous amount of enthusiasm that that we always give him crap for all the time um, and he uh, he brought that enthusiasm to this idea of looking at this sort of wider landscape and saying like well look what are what what are the how is how is the polarization in this country manifesting itself and a huge a huge sort of cleavage a huge problem is is the urban rural gap in, in the in this country and so um, he wanted to put his his expertise. He he also comes from this world that I come from around facilitation and mediation and thinking about conflict in, in these ways. Um, and he wanted to put that into practice to empower people, uh, not just to dialogue, but to take action together. Um, that's not to knock dialogue on its own. Dialogue is wildly important. And uh, sort of Joe's approach and our approach in general is is to uh, to use that dialogue and steer the energy you get from that dialogue into um, some action where people can actually work together 
uh, yes. work on projects uh, and, and do some things together and collaboratively so that they can, we're not just talking about the talk, but we're actually uh, uh, sort of collaborating in the process of doing something. I love that. And yeah, I think we think about this a lot too, that it's so much different. As you said, dialogue is really important. It's always valuable to have a conversation with someone across differences, but it feels really different when you have a goal and you're trying to achieve something that is tangible and visible. And um, I'm just curious how, maybe what are some examples from things that people at Urban Rural Action have done that, you know, they're solving real problems or creating a real thing yeah. that people can, you can sort of um, grasp. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I'll answer your question. Before that, one thing that's that's nice is that I think there there is a goal to promote unity. There is a goal to promote collaboration. Absolutely. It's just that how are you going to actually reach that goal? What is that goal? What's the process for which you get by that? And sort of the theory of change of your urban rural action is that people need to kind of not just talk about working together, not just talk about collaborating, but actually do it together. And along the way, you achieve that goal. But oh, by the way, we actually also did this project um, and affected the community uh, on the, in the first place. Uh, and so when you're able to sort of state as a goal, we're going to work together on this particular project, you can also then say, uh, sort of look at the end of it and be like, and we have actually met our other goal of establishing, you know, of promoting unity, promoting collaboration, that kind of thing. So we've seen that um, with uh various uh, projects that have been done uh, a lot of work is being done uh, there's a great program that's been wrapping up on the maryland economy where people are getting together and looking at sort of like local economic issues um and developing interesting solutions for those um there's a lot of work being done around uh incarceration and and um sort of education around incarceration uh and going back into communities and and sort of learning more about being able to educate people on that and doing it in a collaborative way. Um, and so on various issues uh, that are of concern to urban and rural people, uh, they're able to work together and then do the thing. And at the end of it, be like, oh, and by the way, we're actually working together here. Look at that. Um, so that's yeah. that's kind of the thought process. Do people, once they've been through that process and actually completed a project do people say they have greater faith in bridge building in general walking away from it like do you become a believer once you've you've done that yes i mean it it would be it'd be bad if i said no uh, <laughs> but the answer actually happens to be yes um we've gotten a lot of great sort of testimonials from people who go through our workshops where they're able to use the framework that we present uh they go through the workshop they end up uh, applying that framework in their conversations and their project planning with folks, whether it's across the aisle or across the state or whatever you were, whatever gap we're crossing. Um, and they're able to look at the end of it and be like, you know, this was actually a very pleasant experience. And was there disagreement? Absolutely. And were we able to collaborate together? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's also a really interesting it's really enlightening for folks because they just haven't done that much. Um, one of the byproducts of polarization is that we are more and more siloed. And so we don't actually get much experience with folks with whom we disagree. Um, I live right outside Washington, DC. And if I wanted to, I could just spend all my days in my, my little sort of progressive bubble here 
um, with my progressive friends and my uh, progressive colleagues and whatever, and just not talk to anyone who is less progressive if I wanted to. Um, and, uh, and what I love about Urban Real Action is that, again, it provides the space for folks who are questioning that and saying, I don't want that. Uh, it's not reflective of, of who I am. I, I want to be able to reach across uh, a gap and, and work with someone else and be exposed to different ideas. And I want to be challenged. And I don't want to just be so comfortable here because, you know, democracy takes work and unity takes work and collaboration takes work. And so, um, and so that is, uh, that's another nice thing that we've seen where people are actually breaking out of their silos. They're doing that work. They're challenging themselves. And at the end, that's when they're saying like, hey, yeah, that was worth it. That hard work was worth it. I want to continue doing this hard work. Yeah. And you can show other people that the work was worth it. <laughs> There's something yeah. to show for it. Absolutely. One. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No, no. Good. Um, one one common thread and one thing that I really like about this model is there's some accountability in it for everyone who's participating. So you can sort of like, we keep talking about town halls, but you can show up to a town hall or when you're posting on social media, like it can be very unidirectional. You can be like, I've shown up to say what I have to say. I've been talking to myself in my head about it. So it's just getting like, you know, it's all, it's all um, like, there's no feedback. It's just whatever you've come up with. Yeah. And um you know, and like, here's what I have to say, and I'm done. But if you're sitting at, you're sitting in a circle, you're sitting at a round table with somebody, you're actually engaging in a project, you have to, like, you have to check yourself a little bit. Mm. And I think it's really valuable. Like, we're in a lot of scenarios day to day where you don't have to do that. Mm. Um, and it's just a good opportunity to figure out like, okay, well, what am what am I actually here to do? Like, what's, what's my goal with this whole thing? Yeah, and one other benefit is... Um... I go back to process. Uh, one other benefit is that people sort of get involved and then they're agreeing to a certain process, right? They're agreeing to use this framework, which actually forces them to check their understanding, which forces them to ask questions of their counterparts and then, and then um, you know, sort of acknowledge their counterparts' work. It forces them to, to share their own views in a very productive way um, and then to, to sort of internalize that in the context of their partners or their colleagues' views. And so, so much of it is making that initial agreement in the first place. I'm signing up for this and I'm signing up for something which is gonna force me to, to not just go up and pound my chest and get on my soapbox and start spewing stuff, uh, but it's actually forcing me to, to learn, uh, to learn about another perspective. That wouldn't happen, I think, if we hadn't laid the groundwork and hadn't had them actually agree to a process and we manage their expectations on that so that they are you know they know that when they're going in they're going to be challenged on their their own beliefs they're going to be forced to think uh and ask questions about the other side and then when they do that they're going to be working with them uh and so it's all about sort of ground setting and managing expectations and process is what gets us there right yeah. creating a process creating a space for them to be able to do that yeah and you guys have worked, so you work primarily at the local level. Is that right? These are initiatives happening within a local community. Right, right. Um, right. And the idea there is that we're sort of, again, it all starts with individuals. And um, and I don't quite know like how else to work, right? Um, it's really hard to implement uh, cultural change 
or at least the change that we're looking for on a huge institutional level. Um, like you need people to be able to have this experience and to be able to sort of come to that conclusion themselves that, ah, this was really hard and this was worth it. And, um, and, and it has to start on the local level, right? It has to start with individuals being able to do that. Um, yeah. And then we can start thinking about scale and, you know, how do we get the whole world to do that? But right. <laughs> right. But yeah, it has, it has to start there. We think. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, do you see a role for policymakers in this kind of work? Like, could you imagine if I'm imagining like a congressional summer camp where they have to, I don't know, <laughs> like bake a cake together or something across party lines. So policy, actual like decision makers, <laughs> policymakers actually doing Yeah. This. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's funny though, then you get into then you get into this tricky question of, um, is it the, is it the lack of actual contact that they've had with each other um, that is preventing collaboration? And I bet you a lot of people in the Senate and maybe the House, but a lot of people in the Senate already know each other pretty well, and they're still not really able to, <laughs> to get there yeah. together. And so we have to look at sort of diagnose some other reasons, uh, what's going on here. Um, and to us, that, that all comes back to constituencies. Um, they're not getting along because they're being true to their constituency and trying to be a representative politician as much as possible. And it's the constituency. They're going to point to their constituency being like, I can never get away with this X, Y, or Z. So that's why another reason why we want to work at that local level. Um, we want to talk through the work with the folks who represent those constituencies who can say um we actually want you to do the collaborating work that we've been doing we've been doing the hard work on the ground here now we want you to do it um you need to be the one to sort of work much more across the aisle and and do that kind of thing and stop using us as a scapegoat here mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting yeah to think about I think that's a really fair thing to say. Like there's, I'm forgetting now, I think it's somebody at the University of Colorado who has done a lot of work on compromise and how constituents and voters respond um, when their elected officials compromise. And they love it. Like there are, you know, pri strong primary voters, certainly people right. with um, with opinions at the polls who, um, who don't want to see that. But for the most part, it's like voters are delighted. <laughs> right. When, when their members can work that way. Right. And it's so easy for, um, for us to point to a few pretty loud people uh, who are saying, you know, you should never compromise. And it's actually like really romantic to not compromise, like never sell out, never compromise on anything, right? It's what you see in the movies. It's, it's sexy to do that, right? And so I think we need to, we have our sort of like PR work cut out for us, right? You start thinking um, of collaboration and what we were talking about earlier, you start thinking about either kumbaya or you think you're selling your soul or you're all that kind of thing. It just has a bad rep. And it's so much like cooler to be so steadfast in your beliefs and to, and to just like get on your soapbox and make passionate speeches. So I think that's a PR issue more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Like we need a, uh, I don't know, negotiation, collaboration, like lobby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> make it like sound cool um or sound like we're even more passionate um 
but yeah, that's something that's always bothered me that um, when you look at, I guess it makes for less drama, but if you look at movies where the, the culminating scene is someone screaming on a soapbox and that being influential and everyone is moved by this incredibly emotional speech and that doesn't seem to happen uh, much. Mm -hmm. In real life that's not how things get done things have to get done collaboratively things have to get done by uh, by uh shaking hands and and not doing it you know not doing your best al pacino impression <laughs> so yeah that's one thing i there, well, always think we have our work cut out for us on that yeah. how do you make we it have to, we have to rebrand compromise <laughs> rebrand compromise that's a nice way to put it yeah we'll hire we'll hire an ad agency <laughs> Don Draper kind of totally. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, so we're doing a project right now. Um, the programs that we're doing in local communities right now, the problem, the policy problem that we're trying to work on is online misinformation and free speech. And as you can imagine, one of the things that comes up um, frequently and very quickly is like, what do you do with somebody who is just, misinformed about something who's not in touch with reality um you're trying to get to yes with them you want to make it work um but they're really not operating on the same facts as you and i think you know like in this country we're often two silos operating with different sets of facts do you have any thoughts or guidance about how people can work through that dynamic um I do, but I'm also curious to hear about your work with that. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we're doing this in partnership with um, the Convergence Center for Policy Resolution. Um, and they, are you familiar with their program no, no. at all? It's really interesting. So they do um, deliberations over the course of usually nine to 12 months. So they're pretty long with a group of um, academics, policy, you know, think tank experts, often elected officials or their staff, um, corporate leaders who are relevant. So on this topic, it's people from social media companies, the kind of professional advocates that are working on that issue. And they bring people together, like truly from across the political spectrum. So they had mm. someone from Heritage at the recent one, um, you know, along with like Electronic Frontier Foundation, like very, although I guess they meet somewhere on some topics. Anyways, yeah. um, so they work together over the course of almost a year. Um, to come up with a set of policy recommendations, and then they work in some way to move those forward. So we're trying to mirror that at the grassroots level, kind of modeled on, like, to some extent, but for the funding, to be honest, um, monitored on the citizen assembly model that you might see in Europe or Canada or Taiwan. Um, so we don't have a federal federal appropriation to, like, mail 150,000 people and get in a perfectly representative group. So we use a community organizing model to do it. We get a pretty, I would say we get to like 80, 85% of where we should be in terms of rec uh, representation of income, education, race, everything else. Um, and then we get people together on a Saturday. Um, we have a bunch of materials ahead of time for anyone who is inclined to do the homework and learn about the topic. Um, we put them in small groups of six to eight that are politically diverse. And then those groups um, work through the process of coming up with some policy recommendations on that topic. Um, and then the partnership with Convergence is like, I think it's valuable for people to do that. And then we work with them long-term to actually go advocate for those things. Um, so immediately from that, we're like, okay, do you guys need an op-ed training? Do you know how to get a meeting with your state senator? Like, what do you need to do? And then we do ongoing 
trainings coming out of that. The other piece of it is the convergence partnership where I think in a lot of deliberative processes where they fall apart is you may have a government, like if you're doing participatory budgeting or something, you might have an agreement where like whatever the public comes up with is what their electeds are going to do. And it's like a (laughs) one-to-one, like you could actually see yourself in action. More often your electeds will say, okay, we're going to take that into consideration in some way. And then you feel dissatisfied with how it's been taken into consideration. Um, or that you don't really feel like it's been heard at all. Um, So we are creating reports, multimedia reports from each of those events and feeding them into the convergence dialogues. So as their long process goes along, they'll be considering um, what they've heard from the grassroots. And then toward the end of this, we're going to have some sessions where we get a cohort of the convergence experts and a cohort of the grassroots people to actually talk to each other and understand. Like one of the things I'm really interested in is obviously we want that elite group to hear from the grassroots, but we really want the grassroots to hear from that elite group too. Like there's a perception that there's like this ivory tower class that has no idea what's going on. And sometimes that's true. Um, But sometimes it's like, no, we've been thinking about this. This is a really tough question. Like I am an expert and I really care. And I would, (laughs) I would like to explain like why we haven't figured it out yet Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as kind of a trust rebuilding exercise. Um, So yeah, that's That's it. We just rolled it out in April. Um, One thing that sounds awesome about that is the, the term using like the words (laughs) long-term that's huge. Uh, And being able to have sort of sustained contact over, over time. That's, that to me is like the most important thing. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. But that gets to, I think, to your question, which is on the misinformation stuff, which is, um, one, it's really hard. I don't have an awesome answer. Um, <laughs> two is, um, I, I like to think that, again, if you have managed expectations in advance and you have sort of gone into agreement onto how we are going to learn from each other or how we are going to engage with each other, and then um, have that agreement go over time as, as you, you're talking about long-term. Can I have like multiple exposure points? It's one thing if mm-hmm. I just have a conversation with my crazy uncle um, who is getting all this conspiracy stuff. Uh, and it's one thing if I do that and I'm, I'm really open and open-minded and I'm not reactive and I'm really learning about where, what all the sources of information that he's learning from. And it's another thing if I do that, knowing that I'll see him at the next um, at the next family gathering, and he and I would have made an agreement that at the next one we're going to check in and see, you know, how did it go from last time, and and after that at Thanksgiving or whatnot. So to me, again, it's all about sort of managing expectations. If I just launch into, oh, you read this website, oh, you do that, um, you know, that's crap, right? Or even if I do it like nicely and I sort of ask questions about what they're looking at, if they're not under this agreement that that forces them to um, also get curious about you or also to want to investigate the difference between you and I, then I'm not seeing much of a purpose there. Um, then they're going to just dig in. Um, then you asking them questions is just going to embolden them to be like, the more they say it out loud, the more they're going to believe it and be like, yep, I agree with what I'm doing currently. So to me, it's all about um, 
about those, that very first step being sort of negotiating a process in, that you're going to engage in and all about saying, hey, look, can, I, can we manage each other's expectations here? Can we say uh, in this, uh, I'm really interested in learning about your sources of information. Isn't it interesting that we have such different sources of information on this thing? And I want, I'm hoping that you'll learn about my source of information too. And I'm hoping we can sort of get to the bottom of this together. What do you say? Can we agree to that? Can we agree to next, when we talk with each other, we're going to be kind of open-minded. I'm going to learn about you. I'm not going to judge you. You're not going to judge me. You're not going to like generalize that I'm just a liberal, conservative, whatever. Um, but can we agree to that? And a public commitment <laughs> is a huge, you know, the, the psychologist, um, uh, Robert Cialdini, one of his uh, methods of influence was all about commitment and consistency, right? Like if we say something out publicly, uh, we are much more likely to follow through with that thing. And, and that's, that's what I think a process represents here. Um, that can I actually engage with you and agree with you on a process and we absolutely don't have to agree on substance, but we're going to figure out a way that we can do this together. We're going to create space. And again, that's one thing that your action I think does really well and it's unique in that sense is that it creates that space and it creates that those agreements on process and then we see where the substance conversation goes yeah yeah and you really feel like a jerk say if someone lays out very reasonably like here are some terms do you think that this could work for you you feel like it's really good modeling you would feel ridiculous yeah. to say no i can't agree to that yeah, yeah totally i mean at the same time though they've got to be part of the solution too right there's one of my um there's a former State Department negotiator who negotiated Israel-Palestine stuff. And uh, and he has this line that I always liked. Um, his name was Aaron David Miller. And he had this line that said, no one in the history of the world has ever washed a rental car. And uh, <laughs> it's not true. I've actually washed my rental car before. Uh, <laughs> Under what circumstances? I know. I know. Uh, people ask me that question. Like, why would you wash a rental car? <laughs> I like I trashed the thing. I went like off-roading <laughs> in a Jeep. Anyway, long story. You're a very um, good citizen. Yeah. Uh, but the sentiment, even though not factually correct, the sentiment holds, right? You need someone to be a part of the solution to want to take care of it, right? Um, and and same deal. If I just come in and I am high-minded and I am like thrusting this process on someone and saying, let's do this. Um, I don't know. They, they'll at least be like, okay, fine. And then they won't really be part of it. They're not like, you know, maybe they'll they'll sort of smile along and, and go along with you, but they're not going to be really invested. And so it could be like, hey, how are we going to figure this thing out? Like, I, I think you're a little interested in figuring out this difference that we've got between us. I'm interested in that. What's a good way that we can figure this out going forward? And that way we're both potentially part of the process of building a process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much process. So much process. <laughs> so but the process can be cunt. Popular word in my household here. <laughs> dad with the process. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love it. Is there anything else that you would add? Is there anything else you think people should know about negotiating, getting to yes, finding consensus? I mean, there's a million things I could do. A whole <laughs> it's almost like you teach this or something. <laughs> um, uh, just to say that, especially in the work that, that your action is doing, um, I think that just we have to acknowledge, we have to like embrace the fight. Um, we have to embrace 
and sort of counter this idea that um, this kind of peace stuff is the kumbaya stuff and it just kind of happens and whatever. No, it's got to be something where we get in front of it and we're proactive and we're, we're getting out there and we're saying like, this is a really hard thing and it requires a lot of hard decisions and a lot of hard work. Um, there's nothing frivolous about that. There's nothing even like kumbaya or hippie or, or silly or whatever the stereotypes are. But this is uh, something that that you must decide to do and then own it. And then there will be rewards at the end of it. Um, but I think that too often we just kind of assume that um, the forces of polarization are much stronger and there's sort of nothing we can do about it. Um, no, there is something you can do about it. You can work hard and, and try to combat that. And I think oftentimes people just throw their hands up in the air and blame it on what I, what we were talking about earlier, which is like giant entities, giant trends that we can't like touch and smell and feel. Um, and if we can just sort of think, uh, think global, act local and work with your local communities and own it, own the process, get in front of it, treat it like a fight. I'm going to fight the forces of polarization and I'm going to uh, like, I, I, yeah, we have to be tough about it. Um, and we can't be passive about it. Just that. I, I want there to be a bit more fight in our language around it. I want there to be a bit more energy around it. I want there to be a bit more um, just kind of strength around it and not be seen as uh, and sort of dispel this idea that goes along with people who are um, who are who support compromise. Compromise also is equated to weakness. Um, and that's one thing that drives me nuts is that I think we have to sort of like take that back. Uh, and there needs to be kind of strength around that. And we need to show that um, we are getting ahead of this and we're fighting these forces of polarization. And and by the way, um, we agree, we, we happen to agree on puppies and you're, you're a pretty cool person too. And, and we're not gonna agree on guns or abortion or whatever, but that's fine. Um, here are the things we can agree on and let's build on that. Mm -hmm. So that it takes active work, that takes a lot of work, that takes a decision to do that work uh, and then it takes energy. Um, we can't just expect that it'll happen. So it's the, I think it's the Ben Franklin quote, the, the sort of democracy is great if you can keep it. And you got to keep it. You have to work. <laughs> so that's it. Uh, awesome. That's the only thing I would add is just that we need to work at it. And here is it. Your action is just, is uh, for me personally, it's one way to work at it. Um, and it's one way to actually put your energy into it and show that strength and get ahead of it and, and fight these forces of polarization. Yeah. Um, Nassim Curry, that was perfect. No notes. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, everyone awesome. check out, uh, youareaction.org. Yeah. Is that right? Youareaction.org. Right. Um, check it out if you haven't already. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun.